All right. So let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can come together in your name, that we have the freedom to come and worship you however we choose, that, Lord, you have welcomed us to come before your throne, and you said come boldly before that throne of grace where we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. Lord, tonight we just ask for your help to teach, to inspire, to lead, to guide, to reveal your word, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. That's what we want to hear. We need to be taught by the Master. And we just sit at your feet, Lord, and we want to learn from you and hear from you, Father. Lord, bring truth and light and revelation to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we open up here and and get going, because we might segue into other things, I was told that there's some confusion over last week, so people had questions. So I want you guys to ask, what are the questions? What did you not understand? Verse 9 and verse 10. Okay. Okay. Chapter 2 does. No, chapter 1 doesn't. Nowhere does he refer to my little children anyone in chapter 1. You're reading chapter two twice. <laughs> Let's let me backtrack. You want me to backtrack a little bit and go through it again? I'm okay with that. Okay, but you have to promise to ask questions. You have to promise to stop me and ask. Okay. Promise, Darla, Pastor. Okay. <laughs> I'm more convinced of Darla than I am of Pastor. All right. Now, I've never been accused of that. Sure. Well, part of the problem comes that we've been taught certain things, and even if we don't realize we've been taught, even if someone's never come out and done like a series on these things, there's assumptions that we've inherited, we've embraced, things like that that cause us to view things not in their proper light. For instance, you know your Gospels in a certain way because you've been raised in America to read them. But if you were to sit down with someone from Jerusalem who grew up in Jerusalem, in that culture, in that society, and they read those same scriptures, and you told them what you thought about it, they'd say, no, 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 (laughs) no. This is what they're saying. Because it's from a cultural standpoint. So, for instance, and your Bible's full of this stuff. So, for instance, who's heard in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about women wearing veil and men cutting their hair, not having long hair? Everyone know what I'm talking about? Women are told that they shouldn't prophesy with their heads covered because of the angels and all this. And they talk about having a covering. Know what I'm talking about? So is it wrong for a guy to have long hair? Why aren't all the women in here wearing veils? Because the very last verse of that chapter says, and if anyone be contentious of these things, know that the church of God has no such requirements. He's talking about cultural. He's saying, He became all things to all people. So to the Romans, he became like a Roman. To the Jews, he became like a Jew, so that he could capture some of them and embrace them as believers. So the whole point was to not offend them through their culture. So if some of the things that I would say slang-wise here, 
I could never go to England and say. Because even though we speak quote-unquote English, they have different meanings. And I would highly offend them by some of the things that I say. And I don't even think of them being anything crass or anything like that. But to them, they would be. And so you have to understand the culture that you're dealing with. And I think it's interesting that God sent Peter to the Jews, but sent the Jew to the Gentiles, namely Paul. And Paul talks about this, about how he ministered, about being all things to all people. Okay. So one of the things that I believe wholeheartedly is if you're going to truly mine the gold that God has in his word, you have to be willing to come at it with a mindset of, I have no preconceived ideas. I'm not going to tell God what he means. I'm going to open it up and say, God, show me what you mean. And when you come with an open heart, he'll reveal things to you. Because remember he said in this word, call upon me and I will show you great and mighty things which you knew not. He tells us to ask him to show us those things. But if we open our word and we say, oh, no, God, that's what you mean, he'll say, okay, clearly you're not teachable. I'm not going to talk to you about it then because you don't want to hear it. Jesus said these things to his disciples. He said, I have a lot of things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. Jesus said, I'm going to leave you, and where I go, you can't go, but soon after, you will. And Peter says, well, no, you're not, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> well, was he or wasn't he? <laughs> they weren't listening. They weren't hearing. How many times did Jesus tell them that he was going to be crucified and rise on the third day? And it fell on deaf ears. They couldn't hear it. They were spiritually hard. Their hearts were hard and they couldn't receive. Your heart is the place that you actually understand. That's why when you understand love, when you get a revelation of love, your understanding of the word of God expands and explodes because God is love and you understand with your heart. And so as you understand God's love and who he is, it causes you to see things through his eyes and the way he intends for you to embrace them. Okay? So if we're going to talk about this, remember, you got to lay all those presumptions aside. <laughs> and let's just look and see what it says. That's all. I'm not asking you to believe anything that's not there, okay? Just read what it says. I know. I'm just trying to make it, I'm trying to help you see it. Okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, Okay? He's talking about a we. He's talking about him and at least one other person, right? A group. And these people have been at the beginning of this thing. They've heard it. They've seen it with their own eyes. They've looked on it and they've handled it. And what are they talking about? The word of life, which was Jesus. So we can deduce from the context John is talking about who? He's talking about seeing, feeling, hearing, touching Jesus. And he uses the word we. So he's, he was an apostle. He was with Jesus. He laid his head on Jesus' chest. He knew that Jesus was real. He was a real person. And he knew him intimately. Right? He knew him as a friend and almost as like a father. And he says, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it. Now, remember what John, this is where Paul tells Timothy, you have to divide the word. You need to study to show yourself approved, a workman unto God that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So take other, other books that John has been inspired to write and think about where, are he, where is he saying these same exact things. Well, he said, in the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? In that chapter, was he talking to believers or non-believers? Let's go over there. He was talking to a general audience that easily could be both. It could be a believer as we benefit from reading it as believers. It was evangelistic also to the unbeliever. So John chapter 1, 
And he says this, in the beginning was the Word. What do you say in 1 John 1? That which was from the beginning. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. Actually, I skipped some. Was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, First John, remember what he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life, here we go, talking about the life again, the life, the life. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, right? Does Jesus want you to live for him, or do you want him to live his life through you? Jesus gave his life for you so he could give his life to you so that he could live his life through you. It's not you, it's him. What are you? A vessel. You're crucified with Christ. You're supposed to get out of his way. You're supposed to yield and surrender. So in, back in 1 John 1, he says, For the life was manifested, and we've seen it. We, we bear witness. Notice that John says, we, the we, we are witnessing to you. Who do you witness to? Non-believers. Jesus said, tarry ye in Jerusalem till you'll be endued with power from on high, and then you will be witnesses unto me from here, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. We're called to be witnesses, people who have intimately experienced him and can introduce him to other people. We should be concerned about sin in our lives, not because of the fact that God will reject us, but because what will it do to our witness in the world when they look upon us and they say, you are no different than us. The only Jesus they will see is the Jesus that's allowed to live through us. And if his life is not allowed to live through us, and when we say having Jesus' life living through us, remember in John chapter 1, he said this life was the light of men. So he's saying when Jesus comes into a person, he makes you light, right? And he encourages you, he exhorts you to not have fellowship with the things of darkness. And so he tells us, walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the truth as he is the truth. I have no greater joy than this then I see my children abiding and following the truth. That's what John said in 2 John, remember? When we talk about walking in the Spirit, what are we talking about? We're talking about letting Christ's life live through us and bear fruit through us. Well, how do we do that? You behold the light and you become the light. When Moses beheld the Lord, what happened to him? Do you remember? His face shone. Why? The glory of God was on him, but when God was gone, the glory remained. What happened? He, he covered his face, not so they couldn't see the glory, but so they couldn't see that it was disappearing. That's what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4. He didn't want the people to see that the glory was disappearing, so he covered his face. The glory doesn't leave us. We behold the Lord in a glass as in a mirror. What do mirrors do? Reflect. So what he's saying to us is those who are joined unto the Lord, they are one spirit, reflect the Lord. For it is he in you both to do, to do it, and to will it, to desire it, right? 
So in you, if you if you did, got anything out of all that time we spent in Romans 7 and 8, you should have gotten that who you are in the spirit, who you truly are, and we are a spirit, and nothing else is relevant, nothing else, okay? Everything else is old creation. We are new creations. All things are of God, and in him is light, and therefore we are light because we are in him, and in him is no darkness. And we hear John say these words, and the life was the light of men. You know that song, Let Your Little Light Shine? It's what it's about. Letting Christ live through you, letting his life live through us by beholding him that we may reflect him. You see what I'm saying? Am I making sense? If I'm not, you need to stop me. I can preach all night long and give you a great sermon, and it's worthless if you can't take it from here and apply it, okay? The most frustrating thing that I have happened with preachers. We're the problem in the church. <laughs> the preachers are the problem, just if you didn't know. <laughs> so you have to go back and forth here. You have to look at what he's saying and why he's saying and who he's saying to, okay? He's witnessing in 1 John about a life, about a person, about a light. And who's that light for? For mankind. In Gospel of John, chapter 1, he's witnessing about a word, same word he's witnessing about in the first chapter here. He's telling them it's the light of men. He's telling them that he was with God and that he actually created all things. You can combine the two chapters and they don't contradict at all. They're talking to a similar audience. Now listen in John chapter 1. Go on. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness. What did John say? 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness. And we're showing you, showing unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Notice, we saw, we heard, we touched, we know. It was revealed to us and we're witnessing to you. One group who's in that life to a group they're encouraging to come to be a part of that life. There are two groups here, the apostles and who he's speaking to. You see what I'm saying? You never find in Scripture where the apostles talk to believers as though they were sinners. You never see it. They always encourage you to not, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Don't you know that you're the, don't you know, don't you know? He says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The Holy Spirit would never inspire someone to call a believer a sinner because the fact is you ain't, right? Okay, so he's bearing witness and they're showing this other group of people something. And what they're trying to show them is this eternal life. And what did Jesus say in John 17 when he was in the garden, he was praying and he says, Father, let them enjoy this as I have enjoyed it. He says, let them be one with us as we are one with you. And he says, and this is eternal life that you would know the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is not living forever. People in hell will live forever. Spirit beings, by definition, because they stem from God, regardless of how they ended up, you came from God, you are like God, you are eternal. Satan himself is an eternal being. There is no annihilation. I don't care what anyone tells you about that garbage, it's not true. Nowhere in your Bible will you see where anyone will cease to exist. Even in a new heaven and in a new earth where righteousness dwells, there will still be a lake of fire where Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and their followers will burn and be tormented forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. It will never end because they are eternal beings. Mankind is an eternal being. It was Satan and his followers. Christ and his body. 
All, all of us are eternal, whether you believe it or not. It's not if you will live forever, it's how you will live forever, where you will live forever, and what kind of connection will you have forever. They will be tormented. But Ephesians tells us, and I'm just going to flip over here just because if I don't read it right, you don't get the emphasis of it. And it's one of my favorite scriptures. Ephesians tells us, looking over in, let's see here. I thought it was chapter 2. But it's not. Oh. Um, I switched over to my new Bible tonight. Can you tell? Hold on one second because I want to get this for you and I want you to really grasp it. Uh uh. Here we go. Ephesians 2. I knew it was Ephesians 2. I can't believe I even missed that. So look over at Ephesians 2, um, verse 4. He says this But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when. So remember, really, the crux of what I've been talking about this whole time is the unconditionalness of God's love for us after we are saved, right? There's not a maintenance part for Christians to do. We don't maintain our salvation. We don't maintain our relationship, those types of things, right? We don't have to do things to earn blessings from God. He gives them freely to us, right? Listen to what he says. He says, but God who is rich in mercy, guys, for his great love wherewith he loved us. You ought to be able to say, say, for his great love wherewith he loved me. Even when. Hear that? Even when you were dead in, in sins. When you were the worst you could be, he had great and deep love and vast mercy for you when you were the worst. And when you were the worst, he welcomed you in. How can you say now that you're like him, that he would say, get out, or I won't, or he would deny? He, it's not his nature. It's an impossibility. You're contradicting all that he did. But this is the point that I was getting at. He says, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are we saved, and has raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now you've heard that before, and you've heard people talk about, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, and oh, that's so awesome, and all this stuff, right? We've all heard those things. But that's not even the point of it. <laughs> the point is why he did it. Why did he do that? And he tells us right here, so that, in verse 7, in the ages to come, so in that time where that Antichrist and, and Satan and all his followers forever and forever and forever and forever and forever are burning and being tormented, in ages to come, that word ages is literally eons, okay? There is so long your mind can't comprehend it, Okay? It's so long. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. So what will we do forever and forever and forever and forever and forever? What will we be doing? God will be revealing more and more and more and more of his loving kindness to you, individually to you. And there's so much of it to know that it will never end for all of history. 
And he has cornered off, he has sectioned off all of eternity to do just that for you. Because that's how much he loves you. You see what I'm saying? To understand now that when you understand love, it opens up your understanding of what he's saying and why he's saying it. Do you understand now that if you if you would just get an understanding of his love, of the height, of the depth, of the length and the width of the love of God, that you would be filled with the fullness of God. Because God is love. What is God trying to do? He's trying to get you to believe that he is a good God, that he has only good thoughts towards you, that he only has good plans for you. He's trying to get it across our thick heads. (laughs) He wants you. He is more desperate after you than you have ever been for him. That's what he's trying to get you to understand. That was just a rabbit trail. Going back to John chapter 1. That's right. He loved us when we didn't love him. And remember what Jesus said. I don't want to get into the whole predestination thing, but he said, you may think that you chose me, but I tell you, I chose you. You did not choose me. And I chose you that you may bear fruit and that your fruit may remain. Before we were ever created, before anything happened, he didn't make it so, he just knew it would be so. He was the lamb slain. When he was forming Adam, he was forming the being that would build the cross that he would lay down and die on. When he, when he said, let there be, he was also letting a tree be grown that would eventually be cut down and carved into a cross and be nailed to. He was creating the heel that that cross would be put on. He was doing that, and he did it with no hesitation. No, That's how much he loved us. There's no greater love than this, than that a man would lay down his life for another. So then going back over to First John, or, uh, John chapter 1, this is what he says, verse 10. And, and why doesn't 1 John chapter 1, why doesn't he go into the fact that, and God sent a man and his name was John, do you think? Because John is talking to them. John is the one talking to them. John is sent. He's talking to them. He's talking about John the Baptist in this one. But John's saying, I, I am the witness. John the Baptist was the witness there, but I am the witness witnessing to you. There was no need for it. Verse 10 of John chapter 1, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. This is what John is trying to communicate to his readers, what I've just told you. The God who died on that cross was the God who breathed life into the human being who would lead to his crucifixion, was the God who would create the ground that the hill would be built out of that eventually would hold the cross he, he created the cave that would become his tomb. He did it. And then he came to his own, and they didn't even know him. Didn't even know him. The one who had done it all for them. God had not rejected them. They had rejected him. And it was because of this sin knowledge. And he says, he came to the world, and the world knew him not. He came into his own. He came into his own. And his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power. He gave exousia to become the sons of God. He gave them the authority to become the children of God. Does that sound like that's written to believers or to unbelievers? Both. He's talking to those who did not receive him, and he's talking to those who did. Didn't he? And he goes on and he says, um, Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, but of the will of the flesh, or uh, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor the will of man, but of God. So he's saying God did this. This was God's will. This was his plan. It wasn't man's. It's God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among them. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, who's the we? The apostles. We beheld his glory. Now go back over to 1 John chapter 1. Remember verse 2? And the life was manifested, and we have seen it. Who was the we? The apostles. And we bear witness. Who do we witness to? Unbelievers. And we're showing it unto you. Why would we need to show it to someone who already knows it? To be a witness, because they don't know it. So the we and the us are the apostles, the believers, ministering to a group who does not know He's telling you, well, who's the you? Well, the one who's not part of the them who's already known. Do you see what I mean by the, the we you principle? There's two groups here. There's a conversation between two groups, but one is not like the other. And one is saying, this is what we have. And they're inviting this other group into it. See what I'm saying? And he says, you're welcome. And he says, we're showing you eternal life. If they had Christ, they wouldn't need to show them eternal life because Jesus is eternal life. Eternal life isn't a length of days. It is a relationship with a person named Jesus Christ. It is a fellowship, which in the Greek is kononia, which we learned means a likeness and a oneness. A likeness and a oneness. It's not just talking. It's we have something in common. If me and Shonda were in a group of people, and as we were walking down the street, we ended up getting in a group of unbelievers, and we were talking about the Lord, and they started talking to us, maybe we wouldn't even be talking about the Lord, maybe we're talking about something else. Would you not have a keen sense in your spirit that something's not like the other here? We've all had it. You've known people aren't saved without them ever having the conversation with you. Not based on their actions, not based on their clothes, not based on that in your spirit, because we don't know a people by the flesh, we know them by the spirit. I can tell you, when you learn to become sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you learn to let that grow. You can easily identify those things. I can I can walk up to someone, I can tell you that they have a deep relationship with the Lord. It's almost like a drawing, and I love being around those people because when you're around, you're just like you're a Christian, aren't you? And like, yes! I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to talk to this guy. Because Jesus is just flowing off of him. And it contaminates everything. It just infects everything. And you want to talk to them. And, and you can say things to those people, and they're like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And you can have other believers around, like, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. And you can try to tell them, and it's just... It's just like someone, how many times, Sarah, has someone said, tell me what it's like when you hear the voice of the Lord. <laughs> it's sweet. It's, it's, it's like the prophet said, it was sweet as honey on my lips. And it, but, but yet it, it was a deepness, a depth to it. It, it. it hit me to the core, but at the same time, it was so holy, I don't know that I should repeat it. It's... <laughs> How do I explain it? I, there's some things you can't explain, you can only experience. But we can know one another by the Spirit like that. And we do. We do know people like that. Going on, he says, And that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, he's talking about Jesus Christ, that which we have seen, we are declaring, we are witnessing, we're preaching unto you. Why are we doing this? So that you also may have fellowship with us. So that this group can come and join us and be kononia with us. And truly, we are kononia with Father and with Son. And we want you to be kononia with us also. 
Do you realize this was the core of what Jesus was getting at? When we say those who are joined unto the Lord, they are one spirit. Do you get? I don't think we're ever going to truly grasp until we get to be with the Lord and we're in our glorified bodies what that really means. But it was the core of what he was trying to get. Over in John 18, I want you to just I want you to listen to this. Uh, sorry, John 17. This was Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying for you and me. And this is what he was saying. It says, verse, chapter 17, verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to give kononia. I'm going to give oneness. I'm giving, actually that word eternal life literally is the word zoe, and it's the God quality of life. It's the God kind of life. He's saying, I'm giving my life, not just laying it down, but I'm going to infuse my life into you like he breathed into Adam and Adam became a living soul. So God was going to breathe into us again the breath of life. He was going to give us Zoe. We would be one with his spirit. We would be one with his life because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And Jesus says, Father, thank you. You have given them to me and I'm going to give them our Zoe. I'm going to give them me. I'm going to give them God's life. Old things passed away. All things became new. And all things are like God. You become like God. You're not God, but you become like him. You are his body. You're inseparable from him. And he goes on and he says this. He says, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with thy glory which I had with thee before the world was. Verse 6, I, was manifest, I manifested thy name unto men, which thou gave me out of this world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. In the beginning was the word, word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He said that it was the Father in the person of Jesus Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus was the vessel for the Father. And the Father was telling the world through Jesus, remember Jesus says, I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do what I see the Father do. He always talks about the works that I do. I'm not doing them. The Father is doing them. In the same way Jesus says this, you're supposed, you should be saying, I only say what I hear Jesus and the Holy Spirit say. I only do what I see Jesus and the Holy Spirit do. I only work what Jesus and the Holy Spirit is working through me. You see what I'm saying? You're a vessel for his life to continue. And Jesus is saying, I'm your vessel, Father, and I've allowed you to do this through me. And now they know. Now they've heard. They've heard your words. They've seen your life. Now they know. You see what I'm saying? It's all about oneness. It's talking about the Father. And he says, I pray for them. Verse 9. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine. And thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come unto thee, Holy Father. Keep through thy own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. He calls for unity. He calls for a oneness. 
This is why on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, when they were all of one mind and one accord, there was a great mighty wind and tongues of fire came upon each of them and they all spoke in tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. There is an anointing, there is a power, a corporate anointing, when the body of Christ comes together as one. Psalms says it this way, How beautiful is the fellowship or the unity of the brethren. It's as the anointing oil that dripped down the beard of Aaron. He says when the body comes together in unity as one, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, they are separate, but they are one. As they come in unity, submitted, humbled to one another, loving one another, not demanding their own way, but yielding to one another. When they come in that way, there is an anointing that transpires and God comes in that place. And he's praying, Father, please help them to be one the same way we are one. This is God's desire. We're not done here yet. Ephesians, when he talks about the fivefold ministry, we're going to go over to Ephesians 4. And he says this. Flipped one too many pages over, sorry. He says, and he gave unto them some apostles, verse 11, chapter 4 of Ephesians, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. And why did he do it? Well, for the perfecting or the maturing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long? You mean we still have prophets? You mean we still have apostles? We said, yes, we do. Why? Because he says until. Until gives you the timing. He says, for until we all come, the very first reason, until we all come into what? A unity in the faith. Until we can finally come into unity. And a knowledge of the Son of God, a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect or mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When are we filled with the fullness of God? when we fully understand the love of God, how will we come into unity? Through an understanding of him, through an understanding of God and how his nature is, and we accept that and embrace that, and we come together in faith as one in love. We're called to walk in the spirit, which is walking in love. Walking in love is walking in God. That was free. Now he's going to go on and he's going to, I'm not going to read all this because we could be here all night long, but he goes on and he talks about Lord or Father, help them be one as we are one. And he continues this concept, this idea, help them be one as we are one. He wants believers to walk in unity in the way that the Trinity walks in unity. Okay. Going back over to 1 John, John chapter 1. The whole whole crux of his of what he's saying is this. He's saying we have this kononia, we have this oneness with God, and we want you to come and have a part of it too. We're, we're welcoming you in. Isn't that the message? Isn't that what he said? Didn't he say that the message that we are ambassadors and we've been given the message of reconciliation? that it was God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their sins against them. So the message we're to preach is God is not imputing your sins against you. Instead, the church preaches hellfire and damnation. It's a truth. It's a reality. No different than my car is sitting out in the parking lot, but it ain't going to get someone saved. But telling someone that God's not holding their sins against them and that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came and died for them and rose from them, and he's welcoming them in to a fellowship, to a oneness with him, then that will save people. That will cause a hard heart to go soft. 
And if, Lord, if I only had hours, right? <laughs> if we would take this concept of this kononia, this oneness, and talk about every scripture that Paul talks about, the husband and the wife, think about this. We were in Ephesians just a few minutes ago, if you're still over there. Let's just look over here real quick. In Ephesians, Paul makes some statements that go right along the lines of this. Um, let's see here, chapter 5, verse 22. He just finished talking about be being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart with the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Verse 22, chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. You know what that says? It doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. Do you know why? Because obedience and submission is not the same. My wife can obey me and still not submit to me. She can say, I'll make your stupid steak and I'm going to spit on it while I make it. And she'll go make it. <laughs> spit on it and serve it up to me. Did she obey me? She obeyed me. Did she submit to me? Well, <laughs> submission is a frame of mind. You can submit to someone and not obey them. Did you know that? Your kids do it all the time. I wanted to do it, Dad, but I really did mean to do it, Dad. Their heart was a heart of submission. Their heart, And that's why God tells us to not deal with them in anger, not frustrate our children, because then we'll create wrath in them, but instead to deal mercifully with them. So he tells the wives, submit to your husband. Don't obey, but submit. And the point isn't the husband, and the point isn't the wife, it's as unto the Lord. He's saying that there is not a secular, there is not a sacred side to your life. There is only a Christ side to your life. And all that we do, let us do it unto the Lord. And so he goes on and he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Is the point the husband? Is the point the wife? Or is the point that this marriage on earth, a husband and a wife, is to be a picture unto a family, unto a world without Christ, of what God is like to his lover, his wife? That's what it's meant to be. And that's why it breaks God's heart that divorce is just as prevalent in the church as it is in the world. God has always chosen the family to work through. God, when he was ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he said to his angels, shall we not tell Abraham what we're about to do, seeing that he's going to inherit the whole world? And he will teach his children to follow our ways. The reasoning God had to tell him about what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah was because Abraham would inherit the world one day. Has Abraham inherited the world yet? Not yet. We haven't seen it. In a new heaven and a new earth, we'll see it. It's still just a promise at this point. See, God's an eternal being. He deals with everything in his time, not in ours, because he's eternal. It's still a promise. But he said, because Abraham's going to inherit the earth, and he's going to teach his children to follow our ways. What kind of God would we be if we didn't tell him? God is the same way today. God wants the parents to know what those children are doing. He will tell you. You have an authority before God to know those things, even as before the Lord. So he goes on and he says, verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. That was the church to Christ. But now he says, 
husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That, why did he give himself for it? So that he could sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. How much there does he really talk about the husband? He don't. He talks about Christ and his church. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord cherishes the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined, shall come into fellowship, shall have kononia with his wife, and the two shall become one. They should have a likeness. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking concerning Christ and the church. The whole point wasn't even about husbands and wives. It was about this unity. It was about this fellowship, this oneness that believers have with their God. And John, both in his gospel and in his epistle, are doing the same things. He's inviting people in to join him. He wants them to come join him. Now, I'm two minutes over. Can you put that up for me that I asked you? I want you to read with me 1 John out of the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible does what? Amplifies. It brings the meaning out of the Greek, right? doesn't add to, doesn't take away, but it just expresses what you would read if you're reading the Strong's Concordance. And I want you to listen to this because you're going to hear it sound vaguely like what I'm telling you. We are writing about the word of life in him who existed from the beginning. Who was the we? The apostles. Whom we have heard. Whom we have seen with our own eyes. Whom we have gazed upon for our selves and have touched with our own hands and the life and aspect of his being was revealed it was made manifest it was demonstrated remember what he said in john chapter one and the word became flesh and dwelt among us same thing and we saw as eyewitnesses and are testifying to and declare to you the life, the eternal life in him who already existed with the Father and who actually was made visible was revealed to us, his followers. Oh, to who? To us, his followers. So who, if, if it's us, the followers it was revealed to, who are the people that he's not been revealed to, that they're talking to? The unbeliever. What we have seen and ourselves heard. We heard this once too. We saw this once. We did this too, guys. We are also telling you so that you too may realize and enjoy fellowship as partners and partakers with us. How clear is that? We're telling you this so that you too can also partake in this. So you too can be a partaker in this. So you too can join us. And this fellowship that we have which is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. Hmm. 
is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says the fellowship is a distinguishing mark of a Christian, and he says the whole reason we're telling you this is so that you can have that fellowship too. Why would he say to Christians who fellowship is a distinguishing mark of to come have fellowship when if they're believers, they should already have it? And it should be clear. It should already be clear. I was telling you earlier how you should be able to know when you're around believers. I remember when I moved to Tulsa and I went to Bible school, the day I moved in, and I was so excited, but I hadn't met my roommate. I had four room. It was four of us. I had three roommates. But one guy who I was sharing a room with wasn't there. He was working, and I knew he was working at Walmart. And I was so excited. I was like, well, i got to go to Walmart, and i got to get something anyway. So I'm just going to go to Walmart. So I ran to Walmart, and do you know, as soon as I walked in, I immediately went over to this side. There was produce right over here. A guy with head, a Walkman on, because, you know, back then, it was that's what you did. You had a Walkman. Had a Walkman on. He was kneeled down here. I didn't even see his face, and I said, I bet this is who you are. And I said his name, and he says, I am. I said, you're my roommate. Freaked the guy out. <laughs> How did you know that? I just knew. How did I know that? God, the God in me is the God in him. It's a distinguishing mark. Fellowship is so much more, guys, than just talking. I mean, there. do you realize when you commune, spirits, is, when you're in prayer, is it really the fact that you're talking to God? Most of the time you're silent, but there is a conversation in the spirit going on. God is talking to you and you're talking to him and you clearly, you understand more in that time than what you understand when you're trying to use words. That's why he's given us the language of the spirit for when we know not how to pray, he grabs hold with us and he helps us to pray with groanings which cannot be uttered. So he says this is a distinguishing mark of a Christian with, which is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Go ahead. And he says, and we are now writing these things to you so that our joy in seeing you included may be full and your joy may be complete. And this is the message, the message of the promise which we have heard from him and now are reporting to you. God is light. In him is no darkness. In him at all. No, not in any way. So if we say we're partakers together and enjoy fellowship with him, we live and move and are walking about in darkness. He's saying to these people, guys, now remember, I know at this point, because you still got questions about how do you know it's Gnosticism and stuff like this. These people believe they're fine. They're okay. They've got secret knowledge that saves them. Remember, Gnostics believed that salvation was based on what they knew, not who they knew. They didn't believe in sin. They didn't believe they needed a Savior. All spirit was good, regardless of what it was. All flesh bad, so it didn't matter what you did. Right? And he's saying, we are both speaking falsely and do not live and practice the truth, which the gospel gospel speech. He's talking to them about the gospel message, folks. But if we really are living and walking in the light, if we're truly born again, if you really are a Christian, if you really have the fellowship, which is a distinguishing mark of a Christian, you're walking in the light and living in the light as he himself is in the light. We have true unbroken. Say that with me. Unbroken. Your fellowship can't be broken. Unbroken fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, removes us from all sin and guilt, keeps us cleansed from sin in all its forms and manifestations. Hold on there. Did you not remember what he said in Ephesians, let's divide the word properly here, Ephesians chapter 5, looking in verse 26, when he says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Remember this, because John's going to say later in his epistle, 
that believers can't sin. That we don't sin and we can't sin because the seed remains in us. It's impossible. Now that may not make sense right now, but we're going to get there, I promise. Okay? Let's just look and keep in the fact here. He says the blood of Jesus Christ removes from us all sin and guilt. Keeps us. Doesn't temporarily change us. He says it keeps us from the moment you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. From that moment that you're born again, that you enter that koinonia with God and with one another. Because it's not just with God. When you get born again, if I'm his body and you're his body, when you get born again, you become one with me, whether you want to or not. You've got to love me. I'm your finger or your hand. you got to. Because you're one with him. And I'm one with him. So that means we're one. And he says that when that happens... The blood of Jesus Christ keeps us cleansed. It's a permanent cleansing. It's a constant washing. It never ceases from sin, read it with me, in all its forms and manifestations. In every way, in every shape, in every form. Now listen to what he said back here. He says that Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. Why? So that he could sanctify it. What does sanctify mean? Set it apart. He set it apart from the world. So he took us out of the kingdom of darkness, put us into the kingdom of the light. He set us in him. In him is no darkness. He doesn't put darkness in himself. He put light in light. He put us in him, right? He set us apart from them. And he did it so that he could cleanse us with the washing of the word of God. How do you get born again? By the engrafted word of the Lord, which changes your soul. You are born of God by the word of God. You believed his word. And he says you cannot sin because his word remains in you. His seed remains in you. Who is the word? I am the way, the truth, and the light. In the beginning was the word. Christ remains in you. And he is the word. And he says here, he did it so he could sanctify you and cleanse you through the washing of the word. He cleansed you by putting Jesus in you. Jesus is the Word made flesh, and He was made flesh again when He was put in you. And when Jesus came in, everything dead went out. And it wasn't something that you have to have constantly. It was something that happened once for all. Now your soul needs a constant cleansing. But he ain't talking about soul. He's talking about a spiritual work. He's talking about salvation. And he goes on, he says this, that he, who's going to present you? How many people have heard sermons on you better be without spot or wrinkle when Jesus Christ returns? I think every preacher's got a handbook that gives it to him. When you don't know what to preach, preach this, right? But it says he'll do it. He'll do it. First Corinthians says this, that of him he became unto you righteousness and salvation and sanctification and justification that no one can glory except in the Lord. When we stand before God and he says, what did you do to get in? You're going to have to say, it's not what I did. It's what he did. The whole point of it, the whole entire point is so that man would not depend upon his own works, but he would let a Savior save him. And he says that he will sanctify us, that he would wash us, he's done it if we're saved, that he might one day present us before himself, a bride that is without spot and without wrinkle. So do you think you've got spot or wrinkle right now? If you say you do, you don't know yourself the way Jesus knows you. Because in your spirit, who you really are, Christ is joined unto you. You are one spirit with the Lord. 
and in him is no darkness. And if you're one, if you're Kononia with him, there can be no darkness in you either. Let's finish this out. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, refusing to admit that we are sinners. Is this not clear, folks? We delude and lead ourselves astray. And the truth which the gospel presents is not in us, does not dwell in our hearts. And if we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, true to his own nature and promises of the gospel, and will forgive our sins, dismiss our lawlessness, and continuously cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen. Love you, sister. <coughs> Everything not in conformity to his will, in purpose, in thought, and action. And if we say, if we claim we have not sinned, we contradict his word his message, his gospel, and make him out to be false and a liar. And his word is not in us. The divine message of the gospel is not in our hearts. Folks, could it be any more clear that that's written to an unbeliever? Believers preaching a gospel, welcoming in those who don't know it. They may think they know it, but he's exposing the fact what you think you know, you don't know, and you need to know. Do you know this is the right use of the law? He's coming on to people who say, ain't no problem with me. No, because see, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar. He's using the law to lead them to Christ through the gospel. Exactly what Galatians teaches us to do. Are we caught up now? If not, I want you to ask. I won't make you stay tonight, but I want you to ask. <laughs> but I think the Amplified, when I found that, I just wanted to do a dance. I was so excited because it was so clear. I was like, why don't more people read the Amplified? <laughs> it's longer. Well, Pastor, you want to close this out in prayer? Wow, God, you're so good. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Understanding that came forth, and yes. all of our ears were and coming alive in everything you want us to know. You're such a marvelous God. Yes. Bless everybody that came out tonight, traveling mercies on them, Father, and bless those that are ill, as Mark and uh, Debbie and anybody else that I'm unaware of that's ill. We just call them healed right now. Yes. Yes. Amen. Thank you, guys. Oh, thank you.